stance on tradition and progressivist, and um, I don't want to go into touch on it in a few minutes, but um, you might get a you might misunderstand Chesterton just from orthodoxy, but let me just say this in, in defense of him. If it isn't clear from the book, um, Chesterton hated socialism. He thought it was an evil. And he's given arguments to me are the most convincing that I've ever read. He hated capitalism, thought it was evil. Um, so he's not defending, he's not defending any notion of tradition that you can associate with the status quo. You should know that from orthodoxy because he's really clear in the chapters we've read. You can't just leave things as they are. So the traditionalists who sort of see tradition as a place to sit and squat and be at ease, um, that's not his position. You know that from the book. One of the last points he makes in the last chapter that we read is um, we have to be watchful. We have to be vigilant, to be on guard, because the tendency in us as human beings is to put our guard down, particularly if we're happy. If things are going well, we tend to settle. So Chester is, Chester is not defending a status quo. That is not what he's doing. He thinks that there are inherent Disorders in capitalism, he thinks they're inherent disorders in uh, socialism. He wrote a book called Outline of Sanity. It's not a book that I would generally recommend, but for anybody who's interested in economics and the relationship between economics and politics, might enjoy this book. In this book, he's making a case for what he calls distributism. It was a movement in England during his time that was meant to answer socialism at one extreme and capitalism at the other. So it's a completely different philosophy, and you can imagine the reception that it would have gotten. Because most people who are wealthy are going to want to stay where they are, and most utopian socialists want to change everything. So Chesterton's offering an alternative that he knows is not likely to be accepted. But he's making it anyway. He's saying these are some of the things we do to answer socialism at one extreme and capitalism at the other. So outline of sanity, it's just offer it for your reading if, you, if you're interested. Okay. Now to see if I can repeat what I did last week. <laughs> Those of you who weren't here, you just missed a great accomplishment. I missed it. I think it's the first time in three years that I've let you guys out on time. But now I've got to do it again. Boss checking his watch. First time. First time in how many years? Oh. Forty-five. <laughs> Did I ask you? It was oh, I know, I know, I know, I know. Actually, she's being wife's privilege. Okay, let's let's start very very quickly. If you look at the notes, I'm going to touch on things very briefly and get to our chapter chapters tonight. What we've, what we've learned over the course of the last few months, if we've been reading attentively, if we listen to John Paul and Benedict, C.S. Lewis, and now Chesterton, is that the West, as a civilization, has lost its will. 
we, we, don't, we don't hold the convictions we once did. We've, for centuries now, we've, we've lost our roots, we've lost our sense to Christianity. Um, people call America, or the West, Europe, a post-Christian world. Um, we don't have convictions, and you know from the writers that we've been reading, particularly Chesterton, that the causes are materialism, skepticism, relativism. Those are the major causes. Those mindsets. And I want everybody to stop and think about this truly, because I, I think all of us are infected. All of us have grown up with this, whether we knew it or not. My sense is that as, as if, if this was a part of our life, and I'm assuming it was for most of us, it was hard to shake. It took years of growing up, experiencing the effects of living whatever lives we had without knowing these. But that gradually we've come to see the truth of them, that there's something wrong with materialism, there's something wrong with skepticism, there's something wrong with relativism. Chesterton's laid out the arguments, what's wrong. But the effect is, um, he has that wonderful passage in the last chapter we read where he said, um, humility, yeah, humility is in the wrong, or modesty was in the wrong place. Um, that it used to be a correction for pride, now it's seated next to convictions where it does not belong. So people don't have the strength of condition, convictions to stand up in a world in which people don't share those convictions. So it's one of his major arguments. Uh, nominalism. It's probably a word most of you have not heard, but it's an important word, and I want to take a minute with it here. Um, Michelle, I think, I think you've raised questions about it a couple of times. Um, universal simply mean, um, covers all the cases. It's universal, it's true everywhere. So it's a universal fact that um, what defines man is his rational soul, say. Let me try to flesh that out though to show you. Remember that John Paul and Benedict both said it was absolutely essential not to lose our Greek-Roman heritage because it was one of the um, cultures in which we learned about how important universals were guiding our lives. You can call them first principles universals. Um, I made the claim a couple of weeks ago that without knowing it, most people in our culture are um, nominalists. Okay? Nominalists take the position that universals are only names, nominal. They're only names. They don't refer to reality. There are universal doesn't exist. Hold on to this because this is going to get. I, I, I want to. I, I hope I can make this emphatic tonight. If it's not emphatic enough already, they say there's no universals. The only things that have any real existence are particulars. This chair, this podium, Connie's um, hat. Um, Suzanne gloating right now. <laughs> there are only particulars. There's no universals, okay? And I said, remember that it was not a small matter in the Middle Ages because if there's no universals, there's no trinity. We can't see the trinity with our senses. So the nominalist doesn't exist. Every, almost everybody in our age is a nominalist. They just believe in particulars. They don't believe in universals. So, if, I hope I can make this clear. So, for example, one of the defining characteristics of plants is that they repair themselves, right? Pluck off a leaf, and then it grows. 
one of the defining characteristics of animals is not only that they have the power to replenish themselves, make a cut, the skin will cover over. Exactly the way a plant does. Yeah? So, um, regeneration, is that the word I just used? Uh, replenishing or regenerating? It's true. Plants, all plants, it's universal. Um, um, animals have the same capacity. But they also, unlike plants, they have powers of, um, rudimentary powers of memory and imagination. They do not have a rational soul. Okay? But they have powers of reparation the same way plants do, and they have something plants don't have. Humans have each of those three powers. Powers of reparation, powers of um, memory and imagination, and a rational soul. It led Aristotle to say all plants have vegetative souls because they can replenish, they keep growing. All animals have sensitive souls. Th those are universal. It's true of all plants, it's true of all animals, it's what distinguishes them as species. All humans have rational souls. Take that away and a human's not a human. Right? Is everybody following? So there's something universal to plants that allows us to distinguish them as plants. That's a universal. There's something universal to animals, right? There's something universal to humans. And humans have all three, which shows we're of nature. We belong, our home, our starting place is nature. But the fact that we have an immortal soul means our end is somewhere else. But we have um, vegetative souls, sensitive souls, rational souls, all a part of our own souls. That's from Aristotle. Those are universals. Now watch this. This is sort of amazing. If you take those away and all you've got is particulars, you don't have universals, what's to stop a woman from saying, I can't define what a woman is? And if I can't define what a woman is, um, there's no reason I can't have a hysterectomy. I can't do my best. I can, you know, I can change my sex. I can do whatever I want. Because there's no nature. There's no universal. We live in a world of particulars. If that's true, we have no way of arguing with somebody who's going to say, I can take away the life of this baby. I can change my sex. I can do whatever I want. Because there's no universals. Is that clear? I want, I want to put this as emphatically as I can because we've gone over it, but I don't, I'm not sure that everybody sees the full implications of it because it's pretty dark. If you talk with most intellectuals at colleges today, they're all nominalists. And they're educating our kids. If a child reaches the age of eight and, and says to his mom, I, uh, he's a boy, um, I think I'm really a girl, she gives him permission, at six or eight years old, you understand what I'm saying here? What the argument is, why, why it's of a concern. If there are no universals, there's no nature, then we can do whatever we want. Okay? So in numerous, in a number of the works we've been, the, the artists have been, or the writers have been talking about Greco-Roman culture that it's essential to hold on to it because we learned universals from them, from Plato, Aristotle, Homer, Virgil. My God, we've done, we've done the Iliad and the Odyssey together. And I, I hope I can say one of the great truths of the Iliad is 
that it was, it was Homer's recognition that there is a dignity to the human individual soul. That honor wasn't determined by booty. Keep getting it. Achilles said, remember in book nine, I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. He comes to that point where he steps outside of that world where honor is determined by the, by, in the modern world, by the money, your power, your reputation, your career, your name, right? That's 3,000 years ago. The, the amazing truth at the center of the Iliad is human beings have this inherent dignity that we only see in relation to God. That's a pagan. So this whole thing about universals and the importance of the Greco-Roman world has been with us since we started. How many years ago? <laughs> anyway, you're all following, yeah? You're all following. Same thing with Odyssey, same thing. We could go. You know, we could go. So all of these men, in one way or another, have been struggling with that as one of a number of problems, okay? Um, um, you know, one of the beautiful lines at the end of the last chapter we dealt with last week was Chesterton saying, um, he grew up with the optimist and the pessimist around him and feeling he was out of place, that there was something wrong with both positions. We went through that. But in the, he ended the chapter saying that um, he learned from the church, again, because he keeps, every time he struggled with a problem, he looks to the church and discovers the church has already got the answer. He said it wasn't until he realized that this was not his home that he felt at home. He could get mad at things here for what they were, he could be pleased with them, but he couldn't, he couldn't get depressed because this was his home, because if it did, it meant this was a nightmare of a place. This is our end. It was only when he realized that his home was elsewhere that this was a journey that suddenly everything fit into place. If we try to make this our home, we, we go nuts. We get miserable, we get disappointed, we get disillusioned. Or we overdo it because we can't have enough, we keep wanting more. If I can say this, dry bones, the whole point of that passage was that God breathed the spirit into these dead bones and brought them back to life. That's supposed to be a condition for us daily. You know, being brought back to life. Tradition being renewed. Melody, I'm sorry for the gate because I'm going to come to this in a second. If tradition means anything for um, Chesterton, it doesn't mean staying in the past and stagnating. I mean, nothing could be farther from the truth here. If tradition means anything for him, it means holding on to those great truths that we've received from the past that link us with God. What's the title of his chapter? Eternal Revolution. I think that's it. yeah, right. If there's an eternal revolution, we we can't ever stop trying to get better. But learning from the past, carrying the past with us, is a guide. Think what would happen here. Um, think what would happen if we got rid of the Greco-Roman tradition and became nominalists in a world in which it didn't matter what we did. There are no truths. We can do whatever we want because that's our contemporary world. So if tradition means anything for him, it means holding on to those moments where something in the past made contact with God and gave us a universal truth. Like the Iliad, or the Odyssey on marriage, or Virgil on Rome. I mean, we've gone through all that. Am I going too fast? 
because I'm, I'm trusting that all of you are remembering the Iliad or the Odyssey or the Aeneid, you know, the truths that we took from them, and that they're a part of our lives right now. They're not just dead works. They're not just dead works. Any of the more than the Bible is dead work people. <laughs> dead white men. God. <laughs> One of them happened to be our God. Okay. One of the great truths in uh, the uh, flag of the world was there was something wrong with the pessimist and the optimist. The optimist was too cheery. Um, if you're optimistic, you'll just leave things alone. There's no reason for changing. If you're a pessimist, you don't love things enough to change them. Both of them enable. Both of them will just leave things as they are. Um, um, he said that for any real reform to take place, you have to uh, love a thing enough to want to see it get better. And it requires vigilance. You have to stay vigilant. That's from the church. So those are um, those are just some of the key points we've touched on. Um, let me stop for a moment in case there are any questions or comments or I was watching uh, EWTN News and they were talking about um, Shakespeare Playhouse maybe? They're doing um, Joan of Arc. Oh. As a, she's a binary though. Isn't that ridiculous? She, well she's not a woman, she's binary, so she could be um, I think it was just, it's just ridiculous things that are going on in our world today. Uh, just take my, sad, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> just takes my stomach away. No, really, it's, yeah. yeah. How is that? I'm not aware of that. Go ahead. <laughs> Don't ruin it for me. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, more, like, saying that 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 more more feminine In the way he's depicted in statues and paintings? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. 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 Yeah. It's interesting to hear, I, I don't want to take much time here, but at St. Francis, they put a statue of St. Michael over the door, and very masculine, I mean, he's virile and powerful, and he's got a shield and a spear, so it couldn't be more masculine. I, I have trouble looking at it because it's so literal, because I, I, you've heard me say this before, that um, it, I think it's particularly hard for Catholic artists to, to pick something if you're in the world, you make it naturalistic. If you're in the other world, you make it supernatural and you won't be able to see it. But only gifted artists can really bring those two things together. How do you depict a Saint Michael that doesn't make him too human looking, but still makes it clear that it's Michael, it's masculine power, it's, it's virile. I mean, he's you know, going to war against Satan, um, masculine. Um, I just think it's hard. For, and it's rare. Um, I think the church is always a little bit behind times. Um, when we get together for our dinner, I'm going to bring a packet 
of photographs um, that we were given by uh, one of my dearest friends when we were at College of Notre Dame in California. He was the head of the art department. David Ramsey was an artist. His wife was an artist. I loved what he did um, because it wasn't literalist. It wasn't just representational. You'd do a picture and you knew who it was, but it wasn't a literal rending. That is, you got a sense of the spirit of something. Chesterton once said he woke up one morning and he wanted to draw the soul of a cow. <laughs> Imagine that. Right? I just think it's wonderful. You know, because, because somebody who's too focused on the senses will give you a photograph. That's, but that won't capture, well, the not likely to capture the soul of a guy. How do you capture the soul of something? You know, it's hard to do that for an artist. Um, a lot of the poems that we've been reading, like Supernatural Love of the Mother, it's a naturalistic setting, but you can't read it without getting a sense there's more going on here. Any comments about the two chapters we've just covered? The ones we were supposed to read for this class, the six and seven? Yeah. Say? So, chapter six was, it was a joy. Like, it was such a joy to read. I almost started crying. Wow, why? Because Go ahead. He, he just struck the note of what it means, like, what the church means to be universal. And how it speaks to the truth. Just with everything he said, it was just like, yes, he's right. He's right. You know, the church yeah. has gone through and has perfectly gone this path going, you know, pulling the extremes together and holding them, not blending them. Because what happens if you do? Because then you wash, you wash both of them out. Yeah. And it becomes just dull. No pink. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So I thought it was beautiful. Yeah. I, I think both of these chapters are special. It's interesting that you should say that because, you know, we're going through them so much and I'm, I'm always aware that there's a danger of losing a hole, you know, if you get too caught up with particular, so. But um, what happens here, and he says in an earlier chapter, now that I finish this business, and what's interesting, I, I think, if I'm correcting here, you guys, it's in these two chapters that he begins to be explicit about Christianity. He's not before. He's been taking on the art, the disorders of the world. He's not try to make, in fact, it, think about this, I mean, he's so good, if Christians picked up this book, or non-Christians picked up this book and started reading it in the first four or five chapters, they'd have no reason for turning, putting it away. They, their powers of reason would be drawn in. What if he started talking about Christianity in the opening chapter for a non-Christian? I mean, he really has so cleverly, so wisely argued in a way to show what's wrong with the world, and now at this point in the second half, he's he's making Christianity explicit. Why does he call this chapter paradoxes of Christianity? It's because uh, things that are maybe that look opposite. Uh, for example. Uh, the church is, or we are to be meek, but we're also to be strong, and that there's a there's a time for both, and a, maybe a level of each one, a combination. Yep. 
That's for the right time. Yeah. What would happen if it could, What would happen if you were just meek all the time, or you were just run over? Huh? Run over? Yeah. Or if you were just virile all the time, or strong, or whatever. Nobody wanted to be with you. <laughs> you react. Does everybody see? I mean, if you take every one of those things, you'll say that one of the most important things in recovering health is um, that virtue has a composite nature. It's usually two things. To, and the modern mind tends to be black-white. Black-white, it'll be this or that. You, I'm sure you've heard this forever, that the Catholic world is... Um, what, not this or that, but this and... and. What's that phrase? Uh, both and. Both and. Yeah. It's not it's not either or or. It's not one or the other. That there's a rich complexity because it covers all the cases. And if you make one more important than the other, our life is less fulfilling, our relationships with each other mean less. We're not changing the way we should be. You know, in the Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes has that long chapter, a time to live, a time to die, a time for this, a time for that. Yep. Yep. Um, let me take a look at a couple of these. We're going to set a record. <laughs> Wait. I'm cheering for you. Uh, yeah. You cannot know how determined I am. I know you After are. she threw down that gauntlet. <laughs> I've got to do this. Bob, you put your watch away. Um, let me take a look at a couple of these. This is what Chesterton experienced as he was growing up. Um, he said he was an atheist at 12, you know, just agnostic, he didn't believe. And he started reading the intelligent men of his age, and he would quickly learn that one person would say this about Christianity, another person would say this about Christianity. And what he began to realize, and here's the, and you're going to actually encounter this in, uh, we did it in, actually in, in Iliad without pointing out. We'll see it in what we did. What you see is that Chester came to a point where he realized that every one of those men were looking at the same thing. So if you were a tall man, you'd say, Christ is short. If you were a short man, you'd say, you know, it was that sort of thing. What he came to realize is that every one of those people, whatever they were saying, said more about themselves than they did about the reality their minds were turned on. And what he found as a result, because these men contradicted each other, was that this thing that they were looking at was odd indeed. Because all the things that they said were true, it's just that they set things off against each other instead of seeing, here's the rich complexity of this thing that they're all looking at. I think that's probably why that you, you read it and you come away saying, how, how terribly rich our faith is, um, and the world doesn't know it. I'm going to read the opening because I, I, I think it's just a beautiful opening. Chapter 6, because indirectly it, it unmasks, it lays bare the problem of the modern rationalists. And I'll see. Let's just 
a little bit more about that in a second. The real trouble with this world of ours is not that it's an unreasonable world, not even that it's a reasonable one. Kama's kind of trouble is that it's nearly reasonable, but not quite. Life is not an illogicality, it's a trap for logicians. You know, this is just a variation on the theme in the beginning when he was talking about how poets don't go mad, but logist logist logicians and mathematicians do, because their words are so their worlds are so narrowly defined. Um, life is not an illogicality, and it's a trap for logicians. It looks just a little more mathematical and regular than it is. Its exactitude is obvious, but its inexactitude is hidden. I don't know of anybody who could have written those lines except Chesterton. That's just extraordinary, that kind of subtlety. Its wildness lies in wait. I give one coarse instance of what I mean. Suppose a mathematician, he describes somebody from another world coming to the scene. There are two arms, there's two legs, there's two ears, you know, there's two eyes. So if he were logical, he would deduce if there's a heart, there's got to be two hearts. He says it's just when you reach that point that you realize there's something that doesn't fit into that pattern. What mathematicians do, because remember, math is an abstraction for reality. It's not an exact description. It's, a, it's an abstraction from into a world of quantity. It's a, we're in a world of conceptual quantities. Um, there are lots of mathematicians who, who absolutely believe the world is governed by numbers. It's perfectly regular. I mean, those are the kind of men who would find Chesterton, I mean, Chesterton would, they'd want to throw a book, they'd want to, they'd want to get rid of a book. Um, he says, it's this silence swerving from accuracy by an inch that is uncanny element in everything. It seems a sort of secret treason in the universe. Um, ten page later or so towards the end, he'll say, um, this is what I've called guessing the hidden eccentricities of life. This is knowing that a man's heart is to the left and not in the middle. That there's just something off. So the world presents us with all these constancies. There's order. There's design everywhere. But there's also something mysterious. And the minute we think we've got everything well ordered, something throws us off. We all know that experience. So he takes on all of the agnostics who made these arguments and then he suddenly realized um, that it wasn't, um, it wasn't Christianity, it was the men themselves and what they were saying on page 294 in the paragraph that begins, and then in a quiet hour a strange thought struck me like a still thunderbolt. Um, and this is where he begins to see that each of the critics were saying, were revealing something more about themselves than Christianity. He said, 295, I was startled to find that this key fitted a lock. For instance, it was certainly odd that the modern world charged Christianity at once with bodily austerity and with artistic pomp. But then it was also odd that the modern world itself combined extreme bodily luxury with an extreme absence of artistic pomp, because it's such a puritan world. I think I said, it came to my mind a couple of days ago. Um, Shakespeare was body. There's lots of puns. Sexually, they're missed today. We wouldn't allow, I mean, in our world, the Puritan world, people would be disgusted or offended unless they're intellectuals and they understand it. But, you know, Chaucer was body. 
SH, fart. I mean, he was not embarrassed. There was no, that's our body. Um, I went over all the cases and I found the key fit of the lock. He said, if things happen by chance, they drift or they may occasionally accidentally line up. But when you have something as complicated as a key and something as complicated as a lock and they fit each other, then it's not a matter of coincidence. It's that um, all these truths point to a deeper order. I want to take a look at the three paradoxes as his examples. He said that the pagan, I, this is so important because I, I think probably most Christians are more pagan than they want to admit. Um, I disagree, but respectability has so taken our world over that people care more about offending somebody else than they do about speaking the truth. Respectability just has that kind of hold on us. He takes three virtues um, that would have been virtues in the pagan world, except he's saying, um, for a Christian, it can't be just a balance between two things. As Hester was saying, let's say between black and white. It cannot just be a balance. For a Catholic to be a Catholic, he has to take both of those extremes to their ultimate end. You have to be meek to the nth degree, and you have to be willing to chop off arms and heads in a war. And I hope everybody understands how hard that is. It's much easier to be just meek or just fierce. That was Plato's great argument. His argument is how do you produce somebody just... How do, you use, how, do you, how do you educate a person? He needs music and he needs gymnastics. This is Plato. He needs music and he needs gymnastics. What happens if you have too much music and a, and a man becomes too soft? Becomes too effeminate? What happens if he's got nothing but gymnastics? He's a jock. He has no sensitivity at all. Plato's concern was how do you develop both of those in a human being so that they can be there for board? I, I mean, the most obvious example for me is Joan of Arc. She had to have been absolutely meek and absolutely brave to have done what she did. Um, Catherine um, was an absolutely obedient soul, completely obedient. She had a rare courage. She did things lots of people wouldn't have done. So how do you combine those two extremes? So the challenge for, you've been hearing me say that the challenge for us is how do we order our emotions in such a way to produce this kind of virtue? That we can be humble and fierce at the same time. Because it's much easier to be one or the other. He takes three virtues, and I want to look at them because I, I just think they're so important. On my page 297, paganism declared that virtue was in a balance Christianity declared it was a conflict. The collision of two passions apparently opposite. Right? Because one will cancel out the other. And the point is, you don't want to cancel it out. You want to have the meekness here. This is Elliot, I think, in the bones. You want to have the meekness to put yourself away. You might be crucified. But you lose yourself and willing to die in a battle and you'll fight. You'll go to war. The collision of two passions apparently opposite. Of course, they were not really inconsistent, but they were such that it was hard to hold simultaneously. Let's follow for a moment the clue of the martyr and the suicide and take the case of courage. 
No quality is ever so much out of the brains entangled in definitions of merely rational sages. Cruz is almost a contradiction of terms. It means a strong desire to live, taking the form of a readiness to die. If you're in a fire and you get paralyzed, you die. If you're in a fire, you're going to put your life at risk if you try to find a way out, because you put your life at risk doing that. Um, a soldier surrounded by enemies, if he's to cut his way out, needs to combine a strong desire for living with a strange carelessness about dying. He must not merely cling to life, for then he will be a coward and will not escape. He must not merely wait for death, for then he will be a suicide and will not escape. Okay. Um, he talks about modesty and says that modesty is that rare combination of meekness and fierceness. You know, if, if you become too meek, you just resign yourself to things. You just let things happen. Um, but to combine meekness with a readiness to fight for something, that's great. So you're not just doing it for yourself, because then you're in your own ego. But if you put yourself away and fight for something, you may die. But it's for something better than yourself. I mean, Christ says, um, um, if a seed falls to the ground, or he who holds on to his life will lose it. Christianity sought by this same strange expedient to save both of them. Um, um, conviction and meekness. It separated the two ideas and then exaggerated them both. In one way, man was to be haughtier than he'd ever been before. In another way, he was to be humbler than he'd ever been before. Insofar as I am man I am the chief of creatures, insofar as I'm a man, I'm the chief of sinners. Is everybody following? I hope it's pretty clear how hard these are, because it means as a man we have to lose ourselves completely, get rid of ourselves, and still you know, live for something else. So, I have a question. So to strive for holiness, with, is this what striving for holiness means? Is to bring these two things together that are within ourselves. Yeah. Our tendency to be meek, where our meekness is really a cowardice, versus our tendency to fierceness, which in some cases may be a wrath of sorts. But we are called to bring those things in opposition. If I can, Heather, let me respond and see what your response is to what I'm saying. Because you just, I mean, you've taken this to an nth degree beyond where Chester did, but it's implied in it. If holiness means anything, it, for me, it means a wholeness in Christ. So it means you overcome all divisions within yourself. You're whole. I don't see that happening without Christ because of our sins. So there's some way, and with the help of Christ, we overcome those sins and overcome those divisions. Here, if I can do it in a better, maybe this. So you know that my argument in the Iliad is that um, it, was, it was only after Achilles stepped up and said, my fault, I let everybody down. And he accepted death, that he could go back into the war and nobody could defeat him. Because there was nothing to be afraid of. It's like an alcoholic saying, I'm an alcoholic. Once you admit that to yourself or others, what, what do you have to be afraid of? Your fears won't divide you. So if I can go back. So holiness to me means 
wholeness in Christ. So that means you overcome the division, the sins that we can't overcome within ourselves without Him. And if we're following Christ, it seems to me there's no way to do that except by going to a cross. So how do you go to a cross and die to yourself and still bring him to whatever you do? It doesn't have to be a fight on a battlefield. It could be some struggle at home. It could be in your marriage. It could be with your kids. But that's the cross. And um, it seems to me holiness is a pitch for a Christian because that's a wholeness a, a pagan could not achieve because he... First of all, Pagan would, have not, would not have known that his original sin was against God. That he, that his, unless you come to that point where you admit, any one of us, that our greatest sin was against God. First of all, we disobeyed him. That's our original sin. Next, we put him on a cross. We killed him. How can you become whole if you don't admit those sins because you won't overcome those without Christ? A Pagan could have never done that because a Pagan would have never had that concept of sin. Am I going too fast? Are you following? Go. That's your question. Mm. Do you have one? No. I'm, no. I'm, I'm, no. No? Is everybody? So there's no way to attain holiness um, without going to the cross with Christ because what he was doing was atoning for that sin against God, um, accomplishing an act of justice to right that wrong but bringing to it a divine love. And he's asked all of us to do the same. I mean, I just think that's the hardest thing in the world, but that's what we've been called to. And it's in doing that that we become whole. I don't know if that answers your... Sort of, yes. Because <coughs> I, I think, in a way, it's Christ himself that Chesterton is describing here. Because he was... Jesus was all those things. He was perfectly meek and perfectly... Strong in right. words. He was perfectly right. um, male. You know, he had, he had everything in perfection. Yep. And so, I, I guess that's that would be. So we're called to be more Christ-like in Him, where we perfect our meekness and we perfect our meekness. Our our meekness becomes true meekness. It becomes the virtue of meekness and not. Right, right. Yeah, I would just add, um, you know, when we read um, um, Benedict in Regensburg, Benedict mentions that man um, who looked at Christ as only human, and we know that that's more and more a commonplace, that um, Islam sees him as a, as a prophet but a man. Um, lots of moralists see him as a great moralist like um, Gandhi or some other prophet. But lots of people deny his divinity and, and the trinity and the miracles. So, when I mean, just to pick up your point, you can look at Christ before the death, his death, and say he's a great virtue, I mean, he perfected all these virtues. But I, I think we'll fall short of him if we don't go to a cross. Because on that cross, he did something that took him beyond mere human virtues. He, he died. In a way, no human could, because no human's innocent. We're all guilty. He was God and man. I mean, that's why he could atone for us. A man couldn't atone for <coughs> sins against a God. Only a God-man could. 
he was God and died. So in that act, he, he goes so far beyond the human that some people want to just make human, great moralist, great humanist. But however we look at Christ, it's absolutely crucial to see. We don't see him completely until we see him on a cross where he lets his divinity get killed and rise again. So at that point, you're talking about supernatural things. I think it's why, um, why we have the sacraments. Because we believe, we, even if we practice, you know, like a, somebody uh, hearing a minister on weekends preaching about God, even, even if you hear him or you think about him or you want to be good like him, you can't, we keep, we put blocks in our way if we don't go to a cross and see that there's something so far beyond that, um, and somehow do that daily in our, you know, in our families and our work, and I know that at time it's going to put our families at risk. It's going to put work at risk. I mean, how you do that is that's too deep to get into. But I just I want to say yes to all you're saying, but but just be careful because there's there's something more when you're talking about holiness with Christ because the world's never seen anything like that before. I think that's why Chesterton said, it's taking those two things at a pitch to the nth degree. You can't just leave them there. Um, Sorry? No, I just love that. It was so good because, you know, you think you're going to so, you know, be like Christ, but, but you, can't, I mean, you can't be. I mean, I mean, well, you can't, but you can't. Because well, we struggle with it daily, don't we? Yeah, but the, that was really good there. I like that. Oh, good. <laughs> good. I love this because it seems to me this goes so directly to a problem we have in a Protestant South and in a Protestant America. Because we hear this thing, we get this stuff all the time, that to love unconditionally um, is to look somehow look past the sin, which leads to enabling. You know, if you, if you, if you say, I, the proof of your love is that your sin isn't going to bother me, I love you anyway. And because the, the tendency in a Protestant world is to love unconditionally, it's, it's antinomian, it's against the law. Faith is greater than everything. So the tendency of the Protestant mind is to minimize law or even do away with it. And Paul, in some ways, contributes to that in some of the ways he talks about faith, you know, turning away from the law. Um, that's, a, that's a harder thing. But here, this is, I think what Chesterton does with it is, is one of the best things I've ever read on it. So he's taken courage, he's taken modesty, now he's going to take charity. Which, which we believe is the highest virtue, okay? The greatest virtue. This is towards the end of the paradoxes of Christianity. Take another case, the complicated question of charity, which some highly uncharitable idealists, some highly uncharitable idealists seem to think quite easy. Charity is a paradox. By the way, I hope everybody's getting clear why this is called paradoxes of Christianity, because Christianity, we go to a center, that point of tension is, the, is orthodoxy. That's the center of our faith. To live there means we, it can't be easy there because we're always in tension with something. We're trying to struggle to, to, bound, or to bring things into the right proportion. And he says, 
there's no proportion without a mind. The mere fact of proportion or design means there's a mind working somewhere. He's got God on his mind, but he's also got all of us. Struggle to find the right proportion in things because, um, and I've said this forever, to, if you're in a family and you have seven kids, one of the kids may find it easy to be courageous. Another kid may find it easier to be meek or shy. You've got a different problem with each kid. How do you help the one who's bold to continue to hold on to his boldness and develop meekness, a humility? If somebody's shy, how do you help him to keep on to his shyness, that self-effacement, and come out and fight? Is everybody following? The proportion will be different for each one, for all of us. We're all different in marriages. Which one of us is different? Um, so he's taking charity. He says, stated boldly, charity certainly means one of two things, pardoning unpardonable acts or loving unlovable people. But if we ask ourselves, as we did in the case of pride, what a sensible pagan would feel about such a subject, we should probably be beginning at the bottom of it. A sensible pagan would say, there were some people one could forgive and some one couldn't. A slave who stole wine could be laughed at. A slave who betrayed his benefactor could be killed and cursed, right? If, if you betray a, tr a trust, that's a much graver sin than taking wine. That's sure in our household. Anybody takes our wine. Insofar as the act was pardonable, the man was pardoned. pardoned. That again is rational and even refreshing. But it's a delusion. That's what Heather was mentioning a while ago, black and white bring you to a gray. It leaves no place for pure horror of injustice, such as that which is a great beauty in the innocent. And it leaves no place for a mere tenderness for man, men as men, such as is the whole fascination of the charitable. Christianity came in here as before. It came in startlingly with a sword and clove one thing from another. It divided the crime from the criminal. The criminal we must forgive unto 70 times 7. That's from Christ. The crime we must not forgive at all. What are judges doing today? Men are raping, murdering, they're going to and they're being put out on the street to do it again. That's a justice that's helping those men. That's that's attempting to realize a good. The result of it's going to be a harm. There's no justice there. The crime we must not forgive at all. It was not enough that slaves who stole wine inspired partly anger and partly kindness. We must be much more angry with theft than before, and yet much kinder to thieves than before. There was room for wrath and love to run wild, and the more I considered Christianity, the more I found that while it had established a rule and order, the chief aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild. Is everybody clear? If your child does something, let's say he steals something when he shouldn't. How do, let's see what... I hear, let's say he defies. Would you all agree that those are comparable or on the same level? Let's say a, a child takes a cookie from the cookie jar without asking. And then the child lies. Which is worse, stealing the cookie or lying? <laughs> wow. Is there some doubt about this? <laughs> You're also quiet. 
thinking. Thank you. We What? Why? Well, I never could understand, I'm sorry, why taking the cookies from the cookie jar was stealing? Because the cookies were there for the family. Well, let's just say, let's just say the parents said, yeah, well, let, let's just, here, you're good. Don't, Mary, you're, that's okay. Let's just say the parents said, um, we're on a fasting week, no cookies this week. Let, let me try that. So the cookie's there, and the child takes the cookie when he's not supposed to. So my question is, if you, which is worse, taking a cookie when you're not supposed to, or lying? Lying. Why? Because it's like a double. You already did something, you know that you did it, and then you go ahead and then lie to cover for it, so it's a double on top of, and then it perpetuates. And if you live in a home that people just give you a, a, a wave of everything because they lie too or they do little venial things, then this is how it just continues in the families. Yeah. Anybody else on that? I heard it's, something. It's sacrificing integrity. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's almost schizophrenic. You say, you say one thing, but you know in your heart it's different. Yeah. You're creating a fictional world for yourself to live in. It's not the real world. And if that becomes habitual, I mean, where will you stop? And as you grow older, the duplicity or the fraud or the cheating or whatever you remember. Remember the deepest, remember the gravest sin in Dante at the bottom was it was intellectual, it's fraud. It's using our mind to turn something to make it something it's not. So lying is a far worse sin um, than, say, stealing. So there are grades of, there are grades of, sins, which means there are grades of punishment. So I'm going to go out on a limb here because obviously there's differences of opinion on this, but let's say if our, if our grandchildren came over and Suzanne and I were babysitting our grandkids and, and there was a rule in our house that you don't have cookies without asking, you don't know, and one of our grandchildren did that, I would, I mean, I, I would have serious words with them and I'd say, time out or no movie or whatever. If he lied, my response would be more serious. I mean, I would, you know, uh, go to bed without dinner or not watch a movie. That you know, I, I don't know. I mean, you. But the point I'm making here is, you 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 mediate things to, in a, to be appropriate to match up with the with the fault, whatever it is. But the crucial thing that he's saying here, the crucial thing is, so when your son or your grandson takes a cookie jar, do you blow up? And throw the cookie and crash it, and you know, or, or even if he lies, he's saying, um, "Forgive the sinner, do not forgive the the crime." So that what that means is, in our approach to wrongs that we commit, we have to hold somebody to a line. But the spirit in which we do that is everything. So something in us is asked to bring a pardon to the way that we deal with it, because otherwise we're getting self-righteous. You know, probably going to inflict some wrong on our husband, our wife, or children, whatever it is. He's saying, Christ said, pardon 70 times 7. You may get angry at your child, but something in you still has to bring a forgiveness. You just can't hold on to that. Um, and I'm assuming everybody knows that that's not easy. I mean, maybe it is for you guys, or, but is that clear? So once again, he's showing that. At the center of Catholicism, 
um, is this great complexity. It's rich in dealing with our human nature because our human nature is so complex. Um, do all the priests, all the bishops, um, reflect that complexity all the time? <laughs> Absolutely not. I mean, um, you remember Dante put priests and bishops everywhere. I mean, because bishops fail, priests fail. And very often you, you have to be careful with, you know, because people get attached to both. You can hear different things about a priest or a bishop. But the church is, is a complicated place because it's centered on Christ. Um, okay? So, Paradoxes of Christianity is an appropriate title because what he's doing is looking at the paradoxical nature, the mysteries at the center. He can shed a great light on it because at the center of our faith is this great rationality, these powers of reason. Um, but there's also God in a faith that takes us into mysteries. Um, and, and I think that's where we live out our tensions in dealing with those two things. Trying to make sense of things and also doing it, knowing that we're in mysteries all the time. Dealing with these things. Let me stop. Any, any, um, any thoughts or questions about this chapter? Uh, any questions? Melody, I'm so sorry we can't God, I'm just so sorry we can't get your voice. Um, if you can if you can put up a card that's you know got four or five I'd be glad to take honestly you you know that I would be glad to He ends this chapter saying there never was anything so perilous or so exciting as orthodoxy. Stop it we you know go back to our early chapters when we talk about the madman. Is the world complicated to a madman? It is not. I mean, he's got this fixed view of the way the world is, and he lives that. Can he see the insanity of it? No, he can't. You have to be sane to see that. So the sane man is going to see a lot that the insane man does not. The center of our church is rich in rationality. It sees so much, and it's dealing with mysteries. Um, <laughs> So he said, there was never anything so exciting or so perilous or so full of adventure as orthodox. To try to be good is not an easy thing to do. Because you can slip off everywhere. It's much easier to just slip off. There's no adventure there. We, we sort of indulge ourselves in you know, whatever our sins are. But let me stop. Any... I'll, I'll say yeah. something. It amazes me. Wait, sorry. You guys cold? Is it cold in here again? Mm -hmm. It is no. cold. Well, I think I'm right under a vent. That's why. I was... I've got a jacket. <laughs> <in here. laughs> it's just I keep taking it on and off. Uh, it amazes me because he wrote this in around 1908. You would think he was writing it in today's world. True. Okay. And it's so relatable. And I have used that expression for years, not realizing where I come from. I hate the the sin, but not the sinner. And with everything going on in this world today, even though he talks about it in terms of back then, um, there's no judgment. There, 
you have to have judgment without mercy. And we don't do that today. You know, the people will judge, but or or they give all mercy. They right. there's not a there's not a balance. Right. Right. So everything I keep hearing through this book, I love this book. Yeah. Because of the way he yeah. embraces everything. I, I feel like, you know, we just he's he's still around. I mean he's alive talking, giving speeches. I hope everybody knows that um because I, I think it's so prevalent. You can't have a mercy that doesn't rest on a just justice because mercy grows out of that yes. act. Yes. It, it's a it's yes. a flower, a bloom on the breaking of a law, and um, it rests on a mercy means you're you're meliorating your Porsche's words were um, uh, what were words when she said um, mercy is most temperate, or justice is most temperate with mercy. I can't remember her words, but the point she's making is um, mercies bring a greater beauty to an act of justice. If it's left as justice alone, it'll be harsh. It'll be, it'll, it'll be imperfect in Christian terms. But the answer to a crime isn't to explain the crime away or act like it didn't happen, because mercy comes out of a just act. It fulfills it, the two are together. So when people start talking about mercies, if you can give it, you know, in a vacuum, you have to wonder what they're talking about. But crimes have been committed. You you can you can call a person justice self-righteously, you can call a person justice and hold him to that wrong and and bring a better spirit to what you do with it. Chester is saying, um, you forgive the sinner. 70 times 7. But you cannot excuse the crime. If you do, you're just condoning. You're, you're becoming complicit in a wrong. Any, any comments or thoughts? Or? Well, and even today with the mercy thing, it's like our world is, has flipped the idea of what it means to be merciful and what it means to be just. Because we defined it. Because it it, it, liberalism now, as it exists, accuses people like us unjustly and without mercy. It says you are in this box, and forever you will be, yes. because if you are, you can never come out of it. Yes, yeah, yeah. You're completely yes. lacking in mercy, but then over yes. here on yes. the flip side, they're saying, well, actually, that's not a crime, so we're not going right. to punish you for it. Right, right. So it's, they've got it just. Twisted. It's no, they have, they've got it right. Christianity is a really bad thing. I mean, get straight on that. That's what they're saying. Yes. Yeah. I mean, with the, this whole, that the whole utopian world is we will only get better if we get rid of these things. And at the heart of them is Christianity. It's, it's, sorry. Christianity stands in opposition to so much of what they want to do. Right. Oh, yeah. Right. And so they can't tolerate it. I mean, it's high on the list of what you're describing because it's Christianity. <clears throat> chapters, part of I mean, it's interesting to hear you guys pick, part of the beauty of these last two chapters is he's really taking on socialism and utopia worldviews pretty directly, a lot. Here, let's go to the last because I'm, I'm in danger. <laughs> page 307, first page, Eternal Revolution. Notice the title. I love that title. It gives away the whole book. It really does give away. There can be no reform. 
this is one of his major points. There can be no reform unless you hold an eternal view. There has to be something fixed. There's only one thing that's fixed. That's Christianity. Judaism won't get to it. Islam won't get to it. God has already come. He's revealed divine love, divine justice. He says you have to have a, something fixed. And the whole point is eternal revolution means the revolution should be ongoing. Every day we should be converting. But it should be next to a fixed thing, something eternal. That's so crucial to see. Um, because the progress, his argument against the progressive is they keep changing their ideal. If you keep changing, where will you end up? You, you'll, keep, you'll keep heading off in some other direction because you keep changing your ideal. The, 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 the bigoted or stick-in-the-mud traditionalist won't be reforming. I mean, the church, the, you hear this, we hear it so often that I think we probably take it for granted. We're, supposed, we're called to constant conversions. We're supposed to be constantly changing. It's a work of the Spirit inwardly. But that's according to some eternal fixed thing. Um, sometimes people hold on to it self-righteously. Not a good thing. Sometimes people defy it. The way Heather was describing it. He begins the chapter saying, The following propositions have been urged. First, that some faith in our life is required even to approve it. Second, that some dissatisfaction with things as they are is necessary even in order to be satisfied. Third, that to have this necessary content and necessary discontent is not sufficient to have the obvious equilibrium of the Stoic. That's not what we're after. He said again and again, we cannot just resign ourselves to the bad things of the world. And we can't blow up things. We have to continue to work for reform, but in the right spirit. And he's already defined it, right? Heather went to it, you know, pulling together these extremes into that point of tension. So he says, um, um, where do we get this ideal? To what do we turn, is everybody following? To what we, do we turn for guidance for our actions? How do we carry out this reform? Okay? He says, nature can't do it. 308, the second page. Um, nature can't do it. He'll come to that again. But he says, some fall back on the clock. It's as if what was true on Monday will not be true on Thursday because it's a different time. Chesterton's saying, if truth is eternal, it was there on Monday and it will be there again on... But by the way, I've got, to, I've got to say this because people will criticize the church for this. If truth is eternal on Monday, it will be eternal on Thursday. Does that mean even if you're holding to the same eternal standard that your response will be necessarily the same? Take away the probably and explain it. <laughs> well, because I, I mean, you said that, you know, people need to change, not, not the truth. I mean, so you're changing, so you won't do it the same way because you're growing and changing. And the circumstances may change, which will require a different application of that truth. So even if you're holding to the same exact truth, circumstances may require that you approach it differently. It happens in shape for the, I think we did it together, mid, mid sermon night stream. 
Theseus puts Helena under threat of death. She doesn't obey her father. At the end of the play, when uh, the, the lovers come out of the force, he reverses it. And I've heard critics say he's inconsistent. He's just playing. He's not. He's following the same law, except the circumstances are different. The women, the lovers are lined up. So you can take the same truth and apply it. Um, and people could, because the church has been accused of doing this, of being hypocritical. I mean, you have to look, you have to ask yourself, what were the circumstances this first time? What were they another time? They may have changed. So he said, you can't always appeal to the clock um, because time won't give it to us. This is on about a page or two in. Some fall back simply in the clock. They talk as if mere passage through time brought some superiority so that even a man of the first mental caliber carelessly uses the phrase that human morality is never up to date, so I'll be changing. Um, evolution, he says, you can't turn to that. Um, because then, then you just, since things are going to happen according to some blind process, there's nothing you can do about it anyway. Um, on page 310, we need not debate about the mere word evolution or progress. Personally, I prefer to call it reform. For reform implies form. It takes a different form. You're doing something to shape it different. Evolution is a metaphor for mere automatic unrolling. Progress is a metaphor for merely walking along a road, very likely the wrong road. But reform is a metaphor for reasonable and determined men. It means that we see a certain thing out of shape and we mean to put it into shape. And we know that shape because we have an ideal. And if that's not clear, I, I don't know what we're doing here. The interesting thing about our faith is Christ, this is John Paul, this is John Paul and, um, and Benedict, but mostly John Paul. John, John Paul said in the opening chapter, the Christ, the revealer of all things, he came to reveal the kingdom. He revealed his father. He revealed most of the mysteries. It's not as if we don't know. That's from God. If we doubt that, then we're in one of these other worlds. But if we believe that, then we've got to help. We've been shown things. And to go back to what, does that mean our lives are going to be easier? To a cross? Or to go back to that? I don't think so. He says, progress should mean that we are always walking towards the new Jerusalem because that's a fixed thing. It does, it does mean that the new Jerusalem is always walking away from us if that's what um, progress is. We are not altering the real to suit the ideal. We are altering the ideal. It's easier. Silly examples. He, he talks, he gives a number of examples then. 3.12. I really like this. Um, um, so the first thing is, in order for any reform to take place, there has to be a fixed ideal. Because if we keep changing the ideal, we'll never get anywhere. We'll just keep changing our direction. We'll, we'll, live, we'll live a world of skepticism, doubt, questioning ourselves. I love this. He's talking about these new isms. The net result of our political suggestions, collectivism, Tolstoyism, Neo-Freudian, communism, anarchy, science, he goes on and on. The net result of all the new religions will be that the Church of England will not be disestablished. It was Karl Marx, Nietzsche, Tolstoy, Cunningham Green, Bernard Shaw, all, who between them with um, bowed gigantic backs bore up the throne of the Archbishop of Canterbury. Indirectly, they were supporting it. 
because that was the one fixed thing around him. We may say broadly that free thought is the best of all the safeguards against freedom. Why does he say that? What does he mean? Free thought is free thought. By the way, I'm saying this because I think most people in America would say, the height of everything is free thought. You should be free to think whatever you want. I mean, we just went through this, right? Um, if you're an eight-year-old boy and you feel sensitive about things, you, you might have a thought that I seem to be more like a girl than you, you know, you ask your parents to support a sex change and you do what you want, free thought. We may broadly say that free thought is the best of all safeguards against freedom. Explain that. What's he saying? People with free thought who have power will push their thought onto you and the laws and that will you will lose your freedom. Just like they're doing today. And I think he's also implying more. If, go ahead, anybody else? Does, does that mean that, uh, that by free thought, it's not tethered to the truth? It's just... Yeah. Yeah, good. So if you're the person, I mean, to take both of your examples, if, if, let's just say, I mean, you don't have to turn to somebody else. We can turn to ourselves or anybody. If somebody has free thought and he uses that free thought to um, exercise some power of another human being, um, What's likely to happen two years after that point in that same person, if he has free thought? It's going to change. Yeah. I mean, if, if he is, I mean, who's to say that he won't change it in two months or six months or a year or, I mean, what motivated, I mean, like you were so right, it's not tethered to anything, it's not tied to anything. If it's this way one day or one year, what will it be three years from there? If it's free thought, there's nothing binding him, it could be something completely different. It's, it's like criticism, Chesterton's criticism of the progressive. If you don't have a fixed ideal, if you don't know where you're going, you're going to be changing all the time. The great problem is holding on to that ideal, the eternal fix, in the right spirit. Okay, and that's what or if I could, I've been, the great challenge to Catholics is ordering their emotions. How do you order them if you're, if you're not, I don't know if you're tethered. If you're not tied to something that itself is the perfection of love or justice or order or... And the word that comes to my mind is discernment. Discernment, that's what would tie you and tether you to start asking yourself as you have these free thoughts. It's a check, a bell. Yeah. Discernment, which is hard to do unless yes. we yeah. practice it or watch people... Unless there's something to discern. Um, so 3.13, this therefore is our first requirement. So he says there are three things required. One is the, and so it must be fixed. For any real change or reform to take place, we must have a fixed goal. Thus we may say that a permanent ideal is as necessary to the innovator as it is to the conservative, to the progressive, to the traditionalist. Um, there must be something eternal if there is to be anything sudden. Therefore, for all intelligible human purposes, for altering things or for keeping things as they are, for founding a system forever as in China, for altering it every month as in early the revolution, it's equally necessary that the vision should be a fixed vision. That's our first requirement. 
Okay. He says on page um, on page three eighteen, the second requirement is it has to be composite. Um, we can't turn to nature. He says nature is, if we make nature our mother, that that's our guide, it turns against us. It becomes a dark mother. It's our sister, as it was for St. Francis. We can't turn to nature. We can't turn to time, um, not to evolution. He says on 318, but do we want the universe smashed up for fun? Is it not quite clear that what we really hope for is one particular management and proposition of these two things, a certain amount of restraint and respect, a certain amount of energy and mastery? If our life is ever really as beautiful as a fairy tale, we shall have to remember that all the beauty of a fairy tale lies in this, that the prince has a wonder which just stops short of being feared. If he's afraid of the giant, there's an end of him. But also, if he's not astonished at the giant, there's an end of the fairy tale. The whole point depends upon his being at once humble enough to wonder and haughty enough to defy. There's those two things again. Separate them and the fairy tales will come. He says, so our attitude to the giant of the world must not merely be increasing delicacy or increasing contempt. It must be one particular proportion of the two, which is exactly right. We must have in us enough reverence for all things outside us to make us tread fearfully on the grass. We must also have enough disdain for all things outside of to make us on due occasion spit at the stars. Yet these two things, if we are to be good or happy, must be combined, not in any combination, but in one particular combination. Um, he says what's absolutely essential, he says 319, first it has to be fixed, then it has to be composite. And he says of, of its being composite this, I only point out that if this composite happiness is fixed for us, it must be fixed by some mind, for only a mind can place the exact proportion of a composite happiness. Will we all be able to take Christ, I mean, he's God. Take a look at anything, okay, okay here. Um, he stood over Jerusalem and wept. He cried, cried. He came for the house of Israel. He re, he, when he sent out the disciples, he said, Go out to the chosen house. That's all. Go nowhere else. Those are his words in Matthew. Go nowhere else. He came for his own people. They turned him away. He got really angry. And he said, um, Now we're giving it over to the Gentiles. So early on in his mission, Christ changed. Who could fix those proportions? I mean, how easy is it for a human being to move from something that, arrived, that arouses a pity in you or weeping and then get really angry and turn away from them? That's God. Or to say to Peter, whom he loved, get behind me, Satan. So when you talk about proportion, it's <laughs> and think about what Christ did and say we're asked to follow him, one of the things we struggle is... is what do we do with the mix of those things in ourselves? Because they're so different. In some of us, we're more inclined to pity, and some we're more inclined to get angry. You know, what do we do? So, the point he's making here is there has to be a combination, but they have to be in the right proportion, and that implies a mind, an intelligence working to understand. And let me, let me, if I'm, gonna, I'm just going to 
touched yesterday because I love him so much. Name a writer who is as critical as he, who, who unmasks disorders, who reveals the whole contemporary world with a better sense of humor, who goes to those depths of mind, of intelligence, to see as deeply as he does, to, to be as capable of being critical people, and still love them in the way that he presents them. Name a comic, I can't. Maybe you can. But you see how rare it is. I mean, what he's asking is what he's doing. It's not like he's asking something he doesn't do. He's really performing. He's doing the same thing. He remember that um, in the last in the paradox or the flag of the world he said, um, we're born into the world. We didn't make the world. We're born in the world and we owe it a loyalty before we can ever complain about it. That the first response to every one of us, to everything we ever do in life, should be wonder and gratitude. Do all of us bring those qualities to our arguments? I mean, isn't he doing that? I, I can't read a chapter. It's like fairy tale blood runs through his body. <laughs> He's just got this amazing sense of wonder, but his mind is so profound. He never loses it. It's an extraordinary human being. So the second quality, the second requirement for any real change is a composite. You have to bring things together, but in the right proportion. Um, God, I love. Um, and the final thing is... Um, we need watchfulness. At the bottom of 319, um, the ideal must be fixed. Um, it has to be composite. Um, mine is quite literally a picture, for I know I painted. Then I went on to the third thing, which, as it seemed to me, was needful for a utopian or goal of progress. And of all the three, it is infinitely the hardest to express. Perhaps it might be put thus that we need watchfulness even in utopia, lest we fall from utopia as we fell from evil. He says, the one thing we have to do is be vigilant. What does the church say to us? <laughs> be vigilant. He says, and the, the greatest dangers are sometimes... Here, I, this is so wonderful. Um, you remember in the Odyssey, those of you who did it, when we did it together? You remember that after, I think just, what was it, probably just six months of wandering, Odysseus is on, on the shore of home. He's about to be home. He's asleep. <laughs> what is Homer saying? He's 20 more minutes, he's offshore. He's going to be home. He falls asleep, and his men open the bag, and they're gone. Just when he's closest to home, when he's, I remember this. I remember I was on a, because I, I, you know how much I love these things. We'd been on a fellowship, and we were coming back from, I think, Chicago, and driving home to California. And we came over the Richmond Hills that led down into the Bay Area. And I could feel my... I could feel myself pushing the accelerator <laughs> to go faster. And I'll, I'll never forget that because, I mean, well, I'm sure most of you know that you want to get home, so you probably will make me faster. But he's saying that the time you're vigilant is when you're most happier because the inclination of all of us is that we, we carry original sin. Um, either we sit on our laurels because we're comfortable and wealthy and we get spoiled, or in our utopia, um, we don't care enough of our sins. We look past them because we want to create this world. 
So the third requirement is vigilance. Be watchful. Because if we don't, we'll lose it just like we lost Eden. Um, for the kings, the most pride, he says, he talks about censorship. This is where he, he begins to talk about revolution and political things. For the king is the most private person of her time. It would be necess not necessary for anyone to fight against the proposal of the censor censorship of the press. We do not need a censorship of the press. We have a censorship by the press. <laughs> I hope everybody enjoyed that as well as much as I did. The media today is, is obviously so committed to free speech. Cancel culture. I mean, you go on and on and on. It's just... Um, He's saying we have to be careful, we have to be on guard against all these dangers. And then he says, I caught my breath again, I looked at the church and there was the church. Um, Christianity spoke again and said, I've always maintained that men were naturally backsliders, that human virtue tended of its own nature to rust or to rot. I have always said that human beings as such go wrong, especially happy human beings, especially proud and prosperous human beings. Get wealthy, get rich. What's the word I'm looking for? You're just going to stagnate. You're going to create a morass for yourself. This eternal revolution, this suspicion sustained through centuries, you being of a modern, call it doctrine of progress. If you were a philosopher, you'd call it, as I do, the doctrine of original sin. It's what came from the falls. Um, I don't want to go on because I'm... <laughs> He's not even looking at me. Um, quickly, can anybody, what's his argument against, he says, socialism inevitably leads to aristocracy. It's one of the, his reasons for disliking. I don't want to go into it here because I think it's a wonderful question. Why does he say that? Can anybody make the case? What's he saying? It's towards the end of the... It's, um, it begins with a paragraph, I have spoken of orthodoxy coming like a sword. It's Christianity. Um, he says, I have listened often enough to socialists or even to Democrats saying that physical conditions of the poor must of necessity make them mentally. He's, he's, he's saying that against the socialists who say, if you change the conditions of the poor, um, you'll change who they are, and they should be then qualified to vote. But in their condition, they're, you know, they're disallowed, or they're disenfranchised, or they're looked down on. And he has nothing but scorn for that argument. Why does he say that? Um, why does he take that position? Um, but this is certainly quite practical to disenfranchise them. This is the position people take. You know, that if, if we only, so if we improve people's environment, we make their conditions better, um, that will qualify them for a vote. They'll be more intelligent, they'll be whatever they're going to be. The governing class may not unreasonably say it may take us some time to reform his bedroom, but if he's as brute you say, it will take him very little time to ruin our country. If he's as bad as you say, he shouldn't vote. It fills me with horrible amusement to observe the way in which the earnest socialists industriously lays the foundation of all aristocracy, expatiating blandly upon the evident unfitness of the poor to rule. What's his point? What's he saying? 
there's an elite? Well, basically about changing the environment of the poor, because if we change the environment so they'd had a better bedroom and stuff like that, he would be in a better position to vote. Because Chesterton, Chesterton believes in democracy. I mean, you know that. Because he says the one reason he loves it is because it gives each person a place to express his own. Well, I think he's, he's objecting to the idea that there's something lacking in the, in the, the poor, in the judgment of the poor as it is, because back in the ethics of Elfland, he makes a point about you know, the fairy tales in which there is so much wisdom are a creation of common people. They wouldn't, you know, they're not uh, shared or enjoyed by the people at the gentleman's club or the... The, the wealthy. The wealthy. It seems like kind of an elitist view that the the poor can't make good decisions, yeah. so we have to make the decisions for them. We don't have to make, we have to improve the environment because if we do that, um, it'll take away the inequality between us. Here he says this, um, if clean homes and clean air makes clean souls, why not give the power to those who undoubtedly have the clean air? It's all the wealthy. If better conditions will make the poor more governed, more fit to govern themselves, why should not better conditions already make the rich more fit to govern them? Does our environment determine who we are? I mean, what he's saying is that the modern person says environment, hair, this is our, these are the determinants we're talking about. He goes on to say, the church came in here again. Only the Christian church can offer any rational objection to a complete confidence in the rich. For she's in maintained from the beginning that the danger was not in man's environment, but in man. Further, it's maintained that if we all come to talk of a dangerous environment, the most dangerous environment is the commodities. The church forever has um, gone on and on about the corruption of the wealthy. If, if changing the environment will, will improve um, the capacity of poor men to vote, how are the rich doing? Are the, when we look at the wealthy today, are they examples of how we should live our lives and what they do? No. I mean, what the, the church has gone on and on and on against the corruption of wealth. The, the virtual effect universally, universally is it will corrupt people. Um, the, the, poor, the wealthy are given to fraud, drugs. I mean, you name every vice. Um, but let me go back to this other question because I've only got one in. Why is he saying that socialism is a preparation for aristocracy? In what way? If you make everybody equal, somebody's got to still be on top here. And then you're going to have the monarchy up here telling everybody down here, this is what you can do, this is how much yeah. you can have, this is how much yeah. you can have. It's not the monarchy, it's the... By the way, this is Lewis's conditioners. Hold on. For England, the aristocracy is always the noble board. We did away with that in America because we said birth can't determine a person's place in society. All men are created equal. We took that out. But that was the basis of the, of the British aristocracy. And Chesterton compliments it. He says the great virtue of it is that nobody took it seriously. Everybody knew that there was something wrong with the wealthy. <laughs> the aristocracy in India is a horrible because they believe by virtue of their caste that they're better than other people. That caste system is horrible. It lets people die. Teresa went in there to pick up babies dropped off in garbage cans. 
It's inhuman. So you've got two examples of two very different aristocracies. To, to go to Boston, if the socialists in our country, um, if Chesterton's right, he says it leads to a form of aristocracy, what will be the nature of aristocracy in our country if the, if the socialist, the utopian left, has its way? It won't be the wealthy. It won't be the religious caste in India. What will it be? central planners, the politicians, those who believe that they're better than, say, the English, those well-born are better than others. India, those who are in higher caste are religious, spiritually higher. In America, it will be those who are the best educated. They will think they're better educated than everybody else and can tell us what to do. C.S. Lewis's argument, abolition of man, the conditioners. Those who step outside the Tao, those are the ones who know the they will be. That will be the aristocracy. Yeah. I'll give one minute for questions, because <laughs> I've already. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm, I'm, I'm close enough. I hope Bob will forgive me. Here, I, I, I've been rushing because I'm trying to be good, but I, I want to take a few minutes because any comments or questions or. So I've always heard. I heard one time, and I don't remember where I heard this, that capitalism and socialism are two sides of the same coin, mainly because they both prize material wealth. They put that as the highest good. Yeah. So would Chesterton would Chesterton agree? Oh, for sure. That? Why? In fact, let me put it. I mean, so. Um, if I could try to simplify this. So in a socialistic government, you want to turn all of the power over to the government and the few who rule. So the government, there, there'll be no opposition. The government will rule. It'll have a final say in everything. So, you, so you're giving total control to the government and taking it away from individuals. That is not our democracy. That is not what Lincoln meant when he said, of the people, for the people, by the people. You know. So... The ideal for us was to live that. Um, socialism will attempt to take all the power away from individuals and give it to the government and let the few who are in control govern. So um, to the extent that government increases its power, individual lose it. They have less freedom with which to govern their lives. Everything will be taken care of. It'll be like Egypt in the Bible. The end, of, the end of capitalism will tend towards that why. Why would that be? Because everybody, number one, everybody that's in capitalism, there's still layers. And that layer keep moving up and up, and no. it has done that. Because yep. like, say, it used to be a person that ran a company, not necessarily the owner, but the person that ran a company or CEOs, they only made so much more money than what the average employee made. Yeah. Now there's such a gap in that. Already we're creating these levels, and that's what capitalism is doing. Yeah. If you're up at this level, you're yeah. finding you're at that level, yeah. and that level. It's not only just that. It, it's that plus conglomerates. Once you attain a certain power or magnitude of power and wealth, yeah. and you've you've so you've gone from a, a small shop to a great business. Why would you stop and not do more? So we've got Google, yes. Amazon, Amazon, 
Apple. I mean, you've got all these enormous, and, and <laughs> the Democratic Party, financed by large corporations. Um, so the tendency towards capitalism is towards conglomerates because the, what we did this in Dante, what feeds the entrepreneur is <clears throat> um, achievements. More and more power, more and more wealth. So buried in capitalism is this tendency towards largesse, or largeness, amplitude, greatness, conglomerate systems. What's the monopolies? We used to break that up. Yeah. Yes. I remember. And to put it differently. AT&T and all that yeah. back yeah. in the 70s. Exactly. There was exactly. too big, you had to break exactly. it up. Just stop. Wait, one second. Well, Take a look at our country 150 years ago when there were, if you go into a neighborhood, you'd, you'd find um, mom and pop shops everywhere. You can't go into neighborhoods and, fall, and find small shops of any kind. Sorry, or Paul, go. I don't know who said this, but it's basically the environment we're in today is if you don't uh, grow, you die. And that's really what the conglomerates are doing. Right. And, uh, and their power. I mean, think about what the censorship that's been practiced by, I mean, Chesterton's thing about we already have censorship. <laughs> <laughs> by the press or whatever it is, you know. Um, last comment, because I've got to be good here, so. <clears throat> or try to be as good as. Um, you're all following his arguments. It's really interesting to see the way he turned from making arguments to showing that um, wherever he, he found a problem, he reached a point where he discovered the church had already answered it over and over and over and over again. Um, how well does the modern world heed to the church, the Catholic church? You know, I mean, that, that is in some sense an indication of how far the modern world has strayed from and how far as an American, as an American democracy we have. And I hope you hear this coming from somebody who loves it. I mean, you know what we do on the 4th of July in our house. Um, these things are troubling for me to see. But these are the things we have to contend with, too. If we don't, uh, I love that line of Chesterton. He says, you can't just sit by and, you know, if, if you let a white post, if you just ignore it and let it go, it's going to, I mean, you have to paint it every once in a while. So we have to be vigilant. We have to be in guard. We're asked to constantly reform, you know, to live these things, to put them into practice. So we've got to go. So let me <laughs> let me stop here. Um, next, let's see. We did six and seven, right? Mm -hmm. Is that right? Is that right? We did six and seven. Yeah. So uh, eight, nine. That's it. That's it. We made. If we get, I'm not going to. Let's take eight and nine. But I'm not going to commit myself to finishing. Just if we do finish, I'll leave another week just to review the whole thing. So we'll either get through them both, or we'll get through one and a half, and I'll leave time. But for sure, I want to leave a week afterwards. Next week we'll plan to do eight and nine, whether we finish or not. I'm not sure. But I, the week following, I'd like to do a review to try to put together what we've been doing in this apologetics. That means going back to John Paul. Regensburg, Lewis, Chester, just to try to do a brief overview, to put them in some perspective, to hold on to them, okay? Okay, um, you guys have a good week. Um,
pardon, pardon my 10 minutes.